The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, we're here at the Royal Courts of Justice, where it's been another eventful week in the Leveson Inquiry. Well, I, yes, I certainly think Mr. Anderson never said that he was hostile to the bid before. No. no. Well, he had to be loyal to the process, because the process had to be undertaken in any event. But in terms of his political judgment and preference, he was favourable to the bid, wasn't he? Um... But yeah, I suppose the personal, his personal view there was, yes. We'll be discussing the testimonies of Adam Smith and Fred Michelle and what the future holds for Jeremy Hunt. And... If you love someone, follow your heart Because love comes once If you're lucky enough Yes, it's Eurovision time again. Veteran singer Engelbert Humperdinck is the UK's entry. We'll be assessing the hump's chances of victory and all the runners and riders from the grand final in Azerbaijan. I'm here now at the Royal Courts of Justice with Dan Sapper, the head of media and tech, although, Dan, I should probably say for legal reasons, just outside the Royal Courts of Justice. I think that sounds about right. Um, we've heard Lovely t- view of the Victorian building here. We heard today from um, two men at the centre of the government's handling of the B-Sky-B uh, News Corp takeover, as was or as wasn't, we should say. Um, Adam Smith, Jeremy Hunt's former special advisor, and News Corp lobbyist Fred Michel. Um, Dan, if we could, can we begin at the end, as it were? And, and we heard on on Friday about the uh, the circumstances of Adam Smith's departure from the DCMS. That's right. Yeah. Well, that, that that's right. And rather curious affair it was too. Uh, uh, he, he was a man who'd sort of given the kind of A-star reviews or best special advisor in Whitehall, they said, in December 2010. Then he was, I mean, you know, muddled his way and they'd done their best with the Sky bid, even though, well, it hadn't quite gone through as intended. Uh, uh, and then suddenly in April of this year, last month, along comes this enormous sort of slew of emails from Fred Michelle attached to James Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's witness statements. And it's all about the sort of dialogue between him and News Corporation, Michelle being James Murdoch's lobbyist and then they all watch it on TV they've been warned and Smith goes to see his boss and kind of says well looks bad I'm prepared to resign and Jeremy says don't worry it won't come to that and then he goes has a drink with his colleagues goes home comes in the next day and well it has come to that and Jeremy sees him and says, everybody here thinks you've got to go, you know, and uh, and then he's handed a resignation letter, which is not much fun, really, if you've been there and and been a loyal servant. Are you thinking the thick of it, or is it just me? Uh, There is an element of that. Well, there is an element of that, actually, and I think the thick of it is, uh, is, whilst funny, not that far off a... um, modern political life and then of course he gets handed this sort of drafted resigna- draft resignation statement and then suddenly the office of the cabinet secretary Sir Jeremy Hayward no less uh, they're, they're sticking their oar in and, and, and wanting to rewrite it and sort of say you know well that Smith should have said well, I believed it was my job to work with the News Corporation. Believed. In other words, it wasn't actually his job. He just thought he was doing the right thing. 
and, and Smith totally objected to that and said, "You knew it wasn't. You knew it was my job. You knew that I wasn't, you know, ultra-virus." Uh, and, and so they uh, settled on the form of words that was originally drafted while it was part of my job. Uh, uh, but it was so interesting that, uh, uh, that the office of the cabinet secretary, who knows what political pressure, pressure was being applied, wanted to sort of change the words to, that would have had the effect of heaping the blame on Smith. And, and the one thing I think Smith could extract in his sort of hour of woe. Uh, was at least uh, an accurate reflection of events. And we heard from Smith and Michelle, obviously not both at the same time, but the last couple of days of the inquiry have been very much about looking at the two contrasting sides of the story. You've got Fred Michelle on one side who says that uh, he didn't exaggerate what he was being told by, mostly from um, Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you've got Adam Smith saying, looking at Fred Michelle's emails to James Murdoch, saying, well, actually, I didn't really say that. So um, who came out of this with, with the most credibility, do you think? Two very contrasting characters. Michelle, you know, the sort of, you know, French sophisticate, you know, with a great, lovely, lovely line in jokes. He had a phone call for 34 minutes and you described it as an hour, ah, Mr. Michelle, ah, French time, he says. Uh, 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 you know, he's a, a, a wonderful schmoozer, although oddly, when he was asked whether he was schmoozing, he said, no, I was just sort of communicating with people or whatever it was. He said, they go, French accent. Precisely that accent. Whole thing, you see, uh, 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 with apologies to Mr. Michelle there. And then, but Adam Smith, low-key, monotone, unblinking, straight at the sort of camera he was looking. And, and, and according to Adam Smith, he didn't even see what the fuss was about. This whole B-Sky B-Bit, did it go ahead or not? I wasn't too fussed about it. You know, everything sort of, he barely had a view he could have been a civil servant, sort of dry and neutral and disinterested, supposedly. Uh, uh, he just about sort of managed to tell us that he was really working very loyally for Jerry Hunt, uh, uh, that they spoke every day. Uh, 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 what really came across, I think, and this is, I think, the difference between the two is where what, what Smith did was it was clear that Smith was a loyal conduit for Hunt. What he didn't like doing was ever sort of saying, uh, being drawn on what he thought about anything, uh, and he didn't want to give any kind of impression that he had somehow as a sort of a back channel working in cahoots, if you like, with Michelle. But then he wouldn't, would he? Whereas Michelle was someone who maybe embellished a bit, but all the information he was passing back to his boss, James Murdoch, looked pretty accurate. You know, the overall picture you got, two very different characters, all, I think, working roughly in the same direction, act as a kind of back channel, sort of special advisor, special advisor, communicating on the progress of the bit. Okay, I think Michelle was pretty insistent. I'm compulsive texter, Michelle said. They had about a 1,000 communications over a 12-month period, emails, texts the whole lot. Uh, uh, and I think by the end of his evidence, and, and perhaps by the end of this period, too, I know Smith sort of got bored of Michelle. Maybe he was trying to give that impression in front of the judge that you know Michelle was always moaning or bombarding him. It was sort of polite for him to reply. But as he was doing so, he was getting more and more drawn in. Uh, and that culminated in Smith sending a text to Michelle saying that uh, it could be one of the key uh, exchanges, I think, between the two of them, saying that he'd um, been causing chaos uh, and moaning in the DCMS on his behalf, on News Corp's behalf. Um, and he said that was the, um, the sort of single biggest regret, I think, uh, which Smith had. One of the things you've got to answer, uh, or one of the things you've got to ask yourself, I'm sorry, is, is what do you believe? Do you believe the words that are uttered in the inquiry, or do you believe the words that are written down in the emails and texts 
uh, that you've seen in front of you. And the words that are written down, of course, are contemporary. And, and what you're seeing in the inquiry is the sort of post-hoc rationalizations. And we saw uh, both in Smith and Michelle in their very different ways, an awful lot of disassociation. Uh, uh, they were both sort of, you, you know, sort of, I mean, Michelle was looking for information and Smith was up to a point providing it. Uh, but they were absolutely determined to say that they were in no way in cahoots. They were in no way had prejudged the outcome of the bid. These are all the things that, of course, they were never going to admit to do so. It would have sort of really put, you know, fatally compromised uh, each of them and indeed both of them uh, and, their respective employ- and their respective employers. So I think you've got to look at the language of what was sort of the contemporary record. And that text you've just described... Is, is, is an exact example of this. I think it's in June. It's sort of in the later stages of the bid process. Michelle's getting agitated because the phone hacking stuff is sort of kicking up. And then he wants to know when this bid getting approved. And that's where Smith says to him, I've been moaning to a lot of people on your behalf and, and trying to get things done. And, and I, I, you know, which are people going to believe? I think people are more likely to believe what is said contemporaneously than, than, than what is said now looking back on what was said then. And as so often with Leveson, attention turned once again to Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt and what he told David Cameron about his thoughts on the uh, on News Corp's uh, bid for B-Sky B. And this was a month before he actually took control of that uh, in a supposedly quasi-judicial role. Look, this is the most extraordinary revelation of all, in fact. Uh, you know, not so much the sort of the warp and weft of the Smith-Michelle Smith uh, Smith relationship, but, but this all-important sort of memo that, that, that Jeremy Hunt writes. So let, let's look at the context. It's written on November the 19th, 2010. It's written for David Cameron, no less. It's not a long memo, sort of three paragraphs. And it very much represents what, what Jeremy Hunt felt very strongly about, about the Skybid, that it should be improved, that it approved, that it was good for Britain, that James Murdoch uh, wanted to sort of uh, uh, conduct, if you like, a second whopping revolution, bring together Sky and the newspapers in one sort of single stream of print and television and digital content uh, uh, he, he was excited about that perhaps even he was right to be excited about that now of course at this time Hunt wasn't the man judging the bid that was Vince Cable uh, but what's interesting is Hunt is desperate desperate to get a locus desperate to get some purchase desperate to find some way of influencing Vince and getting in on the bid why because he's been lobbied hard by News Corp and he goes for the lobbying they meet he meets uh, 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 Jeremy Hunt meets Fred Michelle and Rebecca Brooks at the party conference in Birmingham in, in October. They send him some sort of paperwork and arguments. Fred Michelle sends it to Adam Smith's personal Yahoo, Hotmail, wherever it was, personal email account. Michelle says, oh, I see no difference between his personal and his professional one. Okay. Uh, he sends this document. Hunt and Smith sort of email each other. Jeremy Hunt finds it, you know, persuade, you know, finds it persuasive, very powerful. That's it, very powerful are his words in an email. So this happens in in early October, but Hunt's legally got no way in. It seems, and he must be casting around. And again, Jeremy Hunt and James Murdoch, they're supposed to meet on November the fifteenth, but the permanent secretary Jonathan Stevens says he can't meet, too sensitive. So they talk on the phone. Uh, they talk on the phone and then four days later uh, Jeremy Hunt's drafting this sort of strongly worded memo to David Cameron you've got to get we've, we've got to get this deal through we might get in the wrong place politically if we don't what, can you convene a meeting yourself myself Nick Clegg and Vince Cable so we can talk about the policy issues that result well there was a huge attempt to lean on Vince Cable doesn't look like a meeting happened David Cameron didn't go for it 
perhaps in its way significant. But for those who argue that Jeremy Hunt had made up his mind the moment the sort of bid emerged, or shortly after the bid emerged, when he was handed the formal legal responsibility, uh, 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 they certainly have plenty of ammunition there. And of course, Vince Cable was then taken off. Uh, he was relieved of responsibility for the bid uh, because he was seen to be anti-Murdoch. And uh, the brief is given to a, a minister who is, is, is patently pro the bid. Not a problem. Uh, well, not a problem. I think David Cameron has been reiterating uh, uh, today that it was not a problem, that Jeremy handled it all correctly. Uh, uh, look, the stage is set for some very interesting evidence from Jeremy Hunt on Thursday next week. He has got all day to fight for his political life and, and, you, know, and, say, uh, you know, and say what he thinks. And I think the difficulty for him is that if you take a stance in November, an honourable thing to say would probably say, I sincerely think this bid's great. I actually thought it was a good idea. Uh, uh, that, that, that Sky and the Times and the Sun came together and, and he's got to deal with the problem of phone hacking a rather serious problem one might, one might argue but he, he could say oh, that was my sincerely held view and, and actually when I got the sort of regulatory responsible for the bid my job was kind of to, was to steer it through uh, 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 what then happens is Hunt gets the formal responsibility in December after Vince Cable gets stripped of it and, and what Hunt does is to slow it down they get, there to the, they get to the finishing line but they slow things down a lot uh, um, uh, Ofcom has raised enough objections that News Corp have got to propose spinning off Sky News, or at least to sort of 39, News Corp loan 39% of it, but not all of it. Um, that's clearly, I mean, I don't think a great problem for Hunt. I mean, there doesn't seem any great negotiation. I mean, there's sort of very sort of long, long process around that, but not a great negotiation around the principle of that. And they fight, I think, about some rather ancillary issues like who's going to be chairman of Sky News, James Murdoch or not James Murdoch, end up not James Murdoch. Um, uh, but I think so. J- Jeremy should ought to say I think that he was you know he believed in it and thought it was a great thing and then when he was maybe handed the responsibility he has to slightly contradict himself and say well at least I sort of tried I spent a lot of time on it. So Hunt's finally going to get his day in court next Thursday. Uh, anyone else next week, Dan? Never a dull moment at the Leveson inquiry right now. Well, we've got Tony Blair on Monday, uh, uh, Michael Gove on Tuesday, and really interestingly, Vince Cable on Wednesday. He'll obviously talk about his time handling the uh, the Sky bid, and that'll contrast with Jeremy Hunt. So uh, I think Leveson's going to be in the papers uh, all, the, all, all, you know, all, all the time next week. Stay tuned. Well, that's enough from Leveson for this week. And you can hear what Jeremy Hunt and everyone else has to say in next week's Media Talk podcast. It's time to talk TV now. And earlier I was joined in the studio by The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost, and special guest, Mr Eurovision himself, David Simpson. Echo start as it crossing noises that come too soon. Vicky, we're going to start in Europe, but not with Eurovision. Uh, and it was the concluding episodes of The Bridge on BBC Four. Yes. Um, how, how did it go? Out with a bang? Yes, I think it did go out with a bang, actually. I'm going to try and not give a billion spoilers, uh, but you Thank might... you, because you're talking to a man who's up to episode five. <laughs> so this could be tricky. Yeah, so... Um... What do you I, mean he bled to death? No, I, I've I feel seen like that. I feel like we can't entirely. We, we might have to sort of gently skirt around things, allude to things, perhaps. Um, I did think it went out with a bang. Actually, I thought they were very good, really gripping sort of final episodes. And it's been interesting as as a drama. I think it kind of I, I wasn't entirely convinced when it began, and then 
I thought the writing got better, the characterization got better, and the storyline has actually been really strong all the way through. I think sort of episodes seven and eight were just a bit mad and didn't entirely make sense in places. But then it all really came back together for the finale, um, which I'm trying not to give any detail about, really. Well, how did it compare with The Killing? From what I've seen, it's a, it's a bit glossier. It's got moments of humour, albeit very, very bleak humour, and uh, it's an easier watch, I think. I think it's a different watch, yeah. I think it's, you know, as much as anything, it's its pace. I mean, you know, if, if The Killing had sort of tried to con, uh, contain as many storylines as The Bridge, it would have been about a thousand episodes. Um, you know, it's much more that sort of quite slick, sort of American cop drama kind of pace to it, um, which I think I found, to begin with, a little bit sort of surprising. I had to sort of blink quite hard and because you're, you're, you expect to get something else, I think. It's not surprising to me that, you know, that there is um, a UK uh, version of it in development. Set between England and Wales or Um, more sophisticated than that? More sophisticated than that, I think. Disappointing. Um, uh, I I think we do actually go abroad in it. Um, (laughs) In the Channel Tunnel? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, I don't know. It's really not confirmed at all. Um, but it's not surprising. I think I, I could see how it could work across lots of territories, really. Uh, now, as one drama ends, another one begins. Uh, this one with fewer severed corpses, I'm guessing, which is BBC One Silk. Yes, it's yes. It, there's not many uh, corpses in Silk. Really. Well, I mean, there are a few, of course. Um, yeah, this is uh, Silk is an odd thing. I think it's kind of you know this it's a BBC One uh, legal drama written by Peter Moffat and. Um, it's a really quality thing. It stars Maxine Peake um, and uh, Rupert um, Penry-Jones. And and they're very good. Everyone gives very good performances. The script is nice. It's inside chambers. There are some lovely legal scenes. It's not earth-shattering. You know, it's not earth-shattering. It doesn't sort of rock my world. But equally, I do watch it. And I'm quite happy to watch it. It's a little bit soapy. It's never quite as good when it's outside of court. Uh, I think, is when it's inside court. Um, but I think it's like, you know, a slightly uninspiring but nice thing within the BBC One schedule. Is it the closest we're going to get to Crown Court? Yes, my favourite. Uh, Tita, lunchtime viewing from my adolescence. Which may, may precede you, Vicky. <laughs> uh, yes, it might, I'm afraid. It does, as an outsider, it feels very safe. It feels very BBC One, doesn't it? Which I think is what it, you've described. It is very BBC One and it is really quality. I mean, I don't know, it's sort of... I think it's sort of tried to maybe step things up a notch slightly this series in terms of uh, the cases it's looking at, you know, and there was a death after the first one. And um, yeah, it's it's fair. It's, I mean, it's a nice quality midweek thing. And that's not anything to be sneered at, actually. Not everything has to be pushing the boundaries. I mean, uh, it's not as good as The Good Wife, that's what we're saying. Uh, no, it's not really. Although I do love Maxine Peake. I, you know, I could watch her and watch her. And another new series this week was on Sky Atlantic, uh, which was hit and miss. Mm. Which I think, even though it's on Sky Atlantic, it's a, it's a UK production, is it? A Paul? Is there, yes, it's their first UK production. It's a Paul Abbott-created uh, series. Um, and for me, it is more of a hit than a miss. Oh, I went I there. Done I know. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, so, it's got a curious um, uh, conceit, hasn't it? It's, uh, yes, it's, mm, yes. So it's sort of, we've got a transgender assassin who then finds that um, their former partner... Uh, had a child so so she finds she has a child basically have and then she sort of has to go and take over this whole family I mean you know Paul Abbott sort of said well you know I was developing one storyline about um, a transgender um, 
woman who who finds that she now has a family and I was developing another storyline about a hitman and you know they shouldn't go together but they did and I slightly tend to think they just shouldn't have gone together actually and we didn't really need that extra element it feels like there's slightly one storyline too many going in there um but it stars Chloe Savigny I think I'm saying her name correctly I may not be um who is really really very good as Mia the central character um and it's a very watchable thing. It's just it's just a bit odd. It, it's kind of like trying to do too much, I think. And it could have been just as good if it had all been sort of taken down a notch. When the music dies It's all black and white And there's no surprise When the music dies What BBC One needs right now is a, is a big old uh, all-singing, uh, well, just all-singing, actually, all-singing talent contest. Uh, and it's got it this week. Uh, no, not the voice. Uh, well, it has got the voice, but it's also got Eurovision, which we're tremendously excited about. This is the occasion of um, Mr David Simpson's annual trip to the pod, so it's good to have you here. So, David, uh, is Engelbert going to win? Uh, I would be very surprised if he did. So, uh, he's at, uh, number one in the draw in the last time that won from that position was 1984 when it was a jury vote in only 18 countries, so uh, it's unlikely. So he's number one in the draw, that means he's first up. First up. Um, um, straight and afterwards is Hungary, which is very bland, so it's not going to really contrast. So, so it's all about a, being remembered for the televote. He's on a loser already. He's got a pretty bad slot. Because how many countries are there this year? There's 26 in the final, so half went through last night, and there's another 10 decided tomorrow night. So, uh, so 26, so there's only 25 tunes to hear. Straight after, and then and then we can cast back to Engelbert. What did you make of the the song choice? Because it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a slow ballad, and then towards the end, it kind of kicks off on one. It's a grower, which is not really what you want for when ninety nine percent of people hearing it for the first time on the night. Um, I really like it, but I only half liked it at first, which is a bit worrying as well, I think. But I I really like the song. I think it's a good strong, good strong song. Vicky, what have you made of uh, Engelbert's participation? I mean, the BBC chooses who represents the UK these days taking it away from the, the viewing public. Uh, yeah. Who probably would have, uh, probably would have chosen a, a dancing dog to re- represent this. If Britain's got talent, anything to go by. But, uh, well, I wouldn't have minded that at all. Oh, well, I think yeah. it would have been quite appropriate. It's <laughs> a good voice. Uh, I what... don't really feel anything about Engelbert. I think that's slightly my problem, is it was sort of like a nice news line when they announced it, but actually... He's lost the momentum. A, a bit. Actually. You know, that was sort of when it was very exciting for about sort of five minutes, and then you sort of think about it a bit harder, and you kind of think, well... So what, really? I, mm. You know, it's neither here nor there. I mean, I don't know he's entirely in the spirit of Eurovision. I kind of prefer Ireland's approach of just sending Jedward every year. With a big which, fountain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which just seems to be their, their approach now is we don't want to win again because it's so incredibly expensive to host it. So we'll just keep sending Jedward. Basically, I'd like to see them there when they're 150, still in those outfits, you know, in, inside a water feature, doing some <laughs> ludicrous dance routine. And if that doesn't happen, I'll be very disappointed. Uh, what, what do you make of Jedward's entry, um, David? Um, Better than last year? I don't <laughs> he says remember not Sweden's last entry year. last year, but the guy who did Sweden last year, he actually rejected the song, and they've got the song this year. So um, it's, Doesn't uh, bode well. It doesn't really fit them well. It's about a relationship breaking up, and they're not really mature enough to... Or you don't imagine them being in a situation of a relationship breaking up. So I don't think the song really works for them, and it's a bit of an average 1980s song. So... Uh, 
Sounds Don't really perfect. like it. <laughs> <laughs> so if it, so, it's probably not going to be Jedward. Definitely not going to be the Hump. No. So the, no pressure here, uh, David. But who is going to win? Um, there's a few possibles. Let me let me write these down. Yep, carry on. Uh, I would say uh, Norway and Sweden have quite a good chance, and uh, Italy is a fantastic song, so it'll do very well on the jury vote. And given its contrast before and after, it should do well in the telly vote. So they may get up from second like last year and may even win it this year. So Norway, Sweden and Italy. Okay, yeah. well, you, you heard it here first. And Russia, the Russian grannies. I, I can't see the jury voting for that song. Oh. <laughs> it's split between half jury vote, half televote. So I think they will do very well. But I'll be quite surprised if they get in the top three. I'll be so, outraged if they don't yeah. get in the top three. I think they'll take all of the 12s for televotes, but the jury votes will half that. So well, that's what I would expect. Hmm. So. And in the spirit of the bridges, there are, there's no sort of joint... Um, you can see where I'm going here, can't you? Shall I even finish the sentence? <laughs> there is there a joint Denmark and Swedish offering? No, there isn't. No. I it very much, different yeah. offerings. Well, uh, that's one song contest. I did, I did mention another song contest, which is, a contest, uh, which is The Voice. Uh, Vicky, what's, the voice is broken, according to uh, numerous newspaper outlets, including the uh, the Mirror, which picked up on lots of sort of technical gaffes and issues mm. with uh, with the last edition. And viewing ratings are down to sort of six million at least on an overnight basis. Yes. What's happened? Well, well, this is a bit where I say I never liked it in the first place because I never really liked it in the first place. I mean, I think we've seen this. I think um, maybe not to the same extent, but it's suffered the same problems in the states. I think um, where. Actually, after those audition stages where the judges had the chairs and everything, then there was nothing. Then it just turned into basically a low rent X factor and and ratings dropped. And so we've sort of seen the same thing, I think, in the UK. And also now it's going to start heading into nice weather on a Saturday night, which isn't going to do it any favours either. Um, I think, you know, it feels like there wasn't really a plan for it. It was like, well, we got rid of the spinny chairs, and now and now what? Now it's just sort of the same, isn't it, really? There's no real distinguishing factors. I don't know how they could bring the chairs back into it. I, I don't know. You, I mean, <laughs> well, the viewers are the ones spinning, <laughs> spinning in their chairs now, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it feels like they need to. They need to find something that differentiates themselves from every other talent show ever. David, were you a voice man or a BGT? Or? Um... I did enjoy the voice, but again, I would say it lost its way when the chairs stopped spinning. I could understand why they were being nice when they were responding to the voice, but once they start becoming just a normal contest, it just seems like Fame Academy. Very, very nice, very BBC, very safe. And it's, and it's tricky for them, now. isn't it? Because uh, they've got a two-series deal, so uh, you know, they're kind of cat, the cat's out the bag now in the sense that you know, will people return for the second series? From the, from the beginning, you think maybe not. Yeah, although maybe, you know, they've got two series deals, so then that is another series in order to sort it out. I mean, you know, they can sort of learn some lessons maybe from this year and think about what they can do to the second half of the series to make it a bit better. But they should have a good bumper ratings on Saturday, I'm guessing, because Eurovision last year had its best audience for, for 10 years, at 13 million viewers. Debbie, what, what's behind that, do you think? Do you think, was it because Blue were represented in the UK or is there, has it got its sort of appeal back? Is it something to do with Graham Norton or uh, was it just terrible weather last year? I forget. Well, I don't think it's ever dropped below about 7 or 8 million, which is still pretty big. I think Britain likes to say it doesn't care, then it really does. But uh, I think Blue got a lot of coverage last year, which uh, may have bumped up the ratings. And I can't remember what the weather was like, but I'm guessing it mustn't have been good if there was 13 million people watching it, so... Well, it's a cheap Saturday night for our austerity times as well, isn't mm. it? You just need to go and get a load of 
weird food that you wouldn't normally eat and sort of odd drinks and sort of lay them all out. That's like any Saturday night in the plug house, <laughs> aren't you? Anyway, well, thanks very much. You can find out how many people watch this year's Eurovision at mediaguardian.co.uk. Uh, give us till Monday, if you would. Well, that's all for this week's podcast. My thanks to Dan, Vicky and David. You can leave your feedback for us on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett, and Media Talk was produced by Peter Sale. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.